Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast where I bring in the best and the brightest from the world of business, entertainment, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today on the podcast is David Shapiro, founder of Semcore Productions. David and I recently linked up around the time of my Kevin Smith interview as he is a producer of their first feature-length film to be released via NFT, Kilroy Was Here. And David actually started his career studying Asian philosophy and medicine, an origin we'll get into shortly in our conversation. He founded Simcor over 25 years ago as a website that offered information on natural medicine and he used and he used to pay for his schooling and today Simcor has become a visual effects studio an accredited VFX training program a top tier talent network and an associated speaker series and there's a lot going on in the ecosystem David has created so I want to get into it and peel back those layers and see what he's working on David welcome to the podcast uh, nice to be on David, thank you so much. We had a nice little chat before. And, and again, just uh, appreciation for being the consummate connector. And I think that's going to be a theme as we kind of unpack your journey here. But as I mentioned, this show is about following all types of career journeys. And whenever I have a guest that has an unexpected turn, I like to, to pull that back. And early on, correct me if I'm wrong, you were studying East Asian philosophy and eventually became a doctor of traditional Asian, Asian medicine. And today you're an entrepreneur and a film producer. Where did that early interest in the Eastern Asian culture and medicine come from? Uh, that came from study of Taekwondo out in Kansas, where I grew up. Was that there a big was, Taekwondo uh, presence? And in, 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 I can yeah. only imagine how many years ago, we're not trying to age you here, but what was a Taekwondo scene in Kansas uh, a was number actually, of years back? It was back? actually pretty substantial from Kansas City, but I used to work out with the police force. They had a Taekwondo club, some very, very good people. And I got involved that way as a way to defend myself. I wasn't very good at defending myself back then. And it was a very good group and it was a very good art. And from that moment on, I was fascinated by mind and body relationship, training yourself and uh, how philosophy might actually be a part of the real world as opposed to a separate you know, thought process. So that was the gateway. And interesting. I and around in a park in Kansas, in Lawrence, Kansas. Around, around what age were you when you started getting into it? I think it was 17, 17 to 18. It, two years before it, I went to college, I got into it pretty heavily. And through those studies, what do you think was the biggest kind of aha moment that changed maybe a, a way that you were brought up or something that you thought was one way until you really dug into the Asian philosophy? You're like, wow, there's another way to think about this that really kind of changed the direction and shaped the way you think in life. Well, that was uh, like entry point view that taught me um, how to deal with, you know, feelings of being afraid or losing focus. It, 
it taught a way to you know project yourself, to refine yourself, uh, to handle anxiety, to handle you know negative feelings and move forward. If you're fighting with somebody, you're sparring with somebody, you really don't have time. And I was good at it. So it was a way forward for me as a person. So it changed my whole view on uh, what I could become. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's really about truly finding a way to connect the mind, body and spirit all, all in harmony in any type of situation. It is, you know, Taekwondo is a more sort of acrobatic, uh, physical art form, you know, maybe better in general, in my view, for younger people. And eventually I got into what's called internal Chinese martial arts. Most people are familiar with it with Tai Chi, but there's a whole breadth of knowledge there that was more in line with who I was. But that came later. And, and later, and how it, was a, it was a continuum of interest in this field of study. Did you ever, do you ever think like, what, what if you didn't go down that path and, and, and really, you know, dive in head first? <laughs> Yeah, I think I would have ended up uh, bagging groceries in Lawrence, Kansas uh, into my uh, 30s. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't need to, we don't need to go too back, too far back into like your we family history as as, like, and, and dynamic. But I'm curious when you spoke with your family about going down the path into Asian medicine, how was that received? Well, I was already down that path. Remember, this came out of college. This was, I was well entrenched at that point and wanting to study that. I never found anything up to that point or from that point that was better at integrating the mind and body and heart never. And it's a real, it's a real skill and it's a way to cultivate your own self in a positive and non selfish way. And it is uh, intellectually and physically challenging both, both. And so that fit my nature, you know, and then transitioning difficult here and, you know, in the body. And then transitioning into the business side of it, opening up, I think, uh, six acupuncture studios. Am I, am I correct? What was, uh, what was those early mistakes from a, a business standpoint that you made when you were opening up these, these practices? Well, early on, you know, money was very tight. You just do what you could to survive. I always had an entrepreneurial instinct. You know, when I was young in Kansas, I was pulling weeds and edging lawns. You know, I always had a, a sense that I had to work for myself. That was just early on, no going back. I do whatever was required to get to that point. And that's that's quite hard to do if you don't have any money to do. But you know, some people make it easier, some people make it harder. But I was committed to that path. And, you know, of course, when you go to into Chinese medicine, generally you want something more uh, poetic, harmonious, and beautiful, you know. But money is always makes things difficult. And, you know, acupuncture is not covered by most insurance. So what was covered was accidents. So I got into a group of very hardcore business people who were opening up, you know, clinics all over the place and acupuncture was covered. And I could expand that way. But it, it was a, it was also a drag. It was the opposite of what I wanted to be doing because it was great at making money, but it was not very good at the art of it. You had to move very, very quickly. It became more, more like, say, physical therapy as opposed to true Chinese medicine. That's interesting. And I want to jump ahead a bit, and we're going to circle back around here. But I'm very curious because now in your, in your current profession, which includes being a, an entertainment producer where money is the fuel, what is, what is your viewpoint and philosophy on, on money these days? <laughs> That's, I think you need to refine your question there. <laughs> I think. <laughs> 
money, you know, money, like what aspect of it? As far as the role that it plays in your, in your life, as far as a motivator. Money is in the way of everything. Money is the mediator of every action in today's world, pretty much. So it's wise to understand how it works and it's wise not to be poor if you can avoid it. So money, I wouldn't say is my ultimate motivator, but at the same time, I do count it as an aspect of success to try to, as a marker for success of what I'm trying to do. It's unpleasant. I wish, I wish money wasn't such a factor in everything, but I'm a realist and know it is. The way of the, the, the way of the way of the world for sure. And technology also plays a, a very big part in your life. Were you, were you always kind of fascinated by technology, embracing it? Um, when did you kind of realize that you need to get on the train and follow the, the evolution of technology for, for business and for personal use? I think I was always fascinated by it. I had one of those early Radio Shack computers, you know, where you could just do little programming and make lines on the on the screen. And that fascinated me. But uh, it never fascinated me to become like a programmer, though I did learn like the mechanics of like hypertext. You remember HyperCard and Apple? <laughs> the the OG one. <laughs> and I, I learned uh, FileMaker. Like I was, I was very interested in databases. And so I got to the point where I understood them very well, but I didn't want to program them. I just wanted to know what they could do so I could potentially build businesses around them. And uh, I went to Columbia College in New York, and one of my uh, you know, fraternity brothers was very into tech. And he got one of the first little box Maxes, you know, Mac computers, taught us all. The like, rectangles. Quark, <laughs> Quark Express and Illustrator. And he was always using that little box to make amazing art. And that was very inspirational too. His name was Luke, Luke McCormick. So he was shout a very, out. very, yeah, shout out to Luke McCormick. Very inspirational in terms of um, showing everybody how tech could could be integrated with art very, very early on. Interesting. It was very font crazy, you know. I mean, you kind of look back on that and, and, and you're like, wow, that, that probably was the initial foundation into, you know, the work that you're doing now in the NFT space. So Definitely. let's talk about that story. How did you transition into the into the entertainment field? That's, a, you know, I think a lot of people have a convoluted uh, pathways to that. Um, I was always attracted to music, very attracted to music and live music. And in my fraternity at Columbia, um, Bill Graham's son, David Graham, was, was there. Led Zeppelin. He, he owned you know, Bill Graham. I don't know if you know about Bill Graham Productions, but certainly one of the groundbreaking businesses and you know, bringing music to many more people. He brought Led and Zeppelin to the States, right? I think he did. He started doing <laughs> Jimmy Hendrix, working out of San Francisco with uh, Jimi Hendrix Janis Joplin and the dead. I mean, he was, he was a major My force. Dude. He really was. So, I mean, I was very, you know, we were all very inspired by that story and, you know, the proximity of access to that. Um, so, you know, I put on, I put on shows. I liked live events. So I had friends that worked with to do live events. The spin doctors had their first real gig, I think, or one of the first real gigs in our, the basement of our fraternity. Little Miss Runaround, right? <laughs> uh, two princes. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, that was exciting. And uh, the house band was uh, Dreamspeak, which was a very well-known underground jam band. And uh, like Blues Traveler and Spin Doctors both like played shows with them. So I was around that all the time. And that's what I wanted to do. Um, but then Bill Graham passed. And I think that whole thing became very complicated. And I moved, decided at that point to just go and get licensed in Chinese medicine. But I always had that, you know, love of it. And I didn't think Chinese medicine and Chinese martial arts was that far or removed or at all removed from the concept of art. So you're talking about entertainment and art. You know, art is the commercial, entertainment is the commercial presentation of art. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I you know, when I'm doing my research, I'm, I'm trying to find that connective tissue between all of all of your worlds and and it seems to be this element of of philanthropy i'd love if you could share where, where that comes from and and some of those causes that are really uh were close to you then and close to you now and how it all ties together well i think you know if anyone who wants to go into medicine has you know some sort of strong desire to help people i think that's part of my nature and um so i knew i was never going to be able to be like a pure businessman you know in other words, like spending all day at my computer trying to make as much money as possible. So I have sought ways to, you know, bring in some sort of other component to it. I spent a long time in Sarasota working with Ringling College of Art and Design. Um, ended up building a movie studio with them in the county of Sarasota, like a whole city block wide studio. But the whole point there was to bring in um, recognized talent so that students could actually work on it. So it was good for everybody, very, very good for the students because that accelerated their training, good for the talent because they were able to pursue smaller projects that maybe, you know, wouldn't be viable to raise big money around, but they were passionate about. So, you know, they promoted it. They liked it. Good for my company um, because, you know, it gave me more recognition and also good for Ringling College of Art and Design because it, you know, helped bring more students into their program and good for this county of Sarasota. So it's a, you know, more layered approach, synergistic approach that I always take because I'm always trying to see if there's you know, more value that can be added. And I love that too. And, and when I had Kevin on the show, we were talking about the experience, especially with Kilroy and some of the other projects you're working on. But what, what is that? What does that do for you to, to give back and work directly with the students? What's that experience like? I, I just think it makes a lot of sense. You know, it, it is a, it's a good feeling and it adds, a, I think, a more a better and more full experience to the production to be able to integrate people, to help people up, to save time, save people's time. Very, very interested in, you know, what I'm trying to do now with the VFX school is to try to find ways to provide, you know, high tier you know, education that doesn't put people into debt. So I'd say that's my biggest passion at this point in terms of like trying to help a cause. I think that it's possible to train people up in this space much more quickly and much less expensively. I think there's a lot of, you know, unique opportunities where you can be self-directed now in this space. 100%. So, so I, I think that for myself, um, <clears throat> since I've, you know, given up medicine <laughs> to make, you know, a business for realistic purposes, I think that's the element of me that goes back to wanting to help people. And, so and that's I, your medicine. It's just a natural 
part of what I'm always going to be doing. Hey, everybody. First, I'd like to thank you all for spending time with me and my guest on the podcast. This show is my canvas to showcase amazing people from the world of recruiting, entrepreneurship, and leadership, and unpack their career journeys for everyone to learn from. But this show is also a business generator for me, as well as creating thought leadership and endless amazing content. And I've taken what I've learned in the past three years and over 200 recorded and 100 live shows and distilled it down into a digital playbook that I call the Pause Course. Now you could learn how I build, manage, and produce the podcast and use it to drive real business development and relationships. Today, I'm sharing all of my secrets behind the podcast, and you can get it all at thepausecourse.com. This course is for anyone, whether you're starting out or an advanced podcaster using it for B2B, B2C, it's filled with all of my insights, learnings, tips, tricks, and templates. So get it now at thepausecourse.com and learn all my secrets. Thanks. I want to I want to read this quote uh, in a recent article where you said, quote, it takes a lot of focus and ethics to make commercial nonprofit collaboration work. Everyone has to be in it for more than the money. Something else that takes time. You really do have to be patient. And that patience is completely worth it. Um, let's who break that, that down a little bit. You said, that. said that. I said that. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a recent article. Um how, how, did, how does that work as far from a business standpoint when you're we're deciding which projects to work with, with with SEMCOR to ensure that it has that nonprofit component but still being commercially viable because it is a business? I think you have a, a wrong view of what I'm doing. I'm not looking to produce um, a bunch of movies. Kilroy, it's all, it's all sort of one-off projects that I find or look for. So we get into the projects I'm doing now. They're different than Kilroy. Kilroy emanated from being, you know, in collaboration with Ringling College of Art and Design. We had all these students. And so it was a project that made sense at the moment. There's some projects that I would take on just from a commercial basis too, like producing visual effects for a company. I got into uh, some aspects of the uh, cryptocurrency world just for money. So it's not all the time, but you know, when there's an opportunity to do that, and certainly with the educational program I'm doing, I seek that out. And it's fairly easy to do. I know a lot of people in the entertainment industry and a lot of people who are doing projects. And so if there's an opportunity to work with them and integrate students, I'm going to try to make that happen. It's not so easy. There's, there's a lot of difficulties in that. But if it, if it works, it works great. Absolutely. Everyone has and to I appreciate know what that they clarification. Like um, so let's get into it. When you and Kevin were first talking about Kilroy, correct me, how, how, did, how did that conversation go around the idea of going down the path of releasing it as an NFT versus the traditional distribution channels? That was all Kevin's idea. I brought Tim the concept. Oh, of he gave you credit. Instead. In my interview, he gave you a lot of credit. So don't sell yourself short there, David. <laughs> well, I brought him into the possibility of NFTs. And so my view uh, with him was that we would, you know, create some original NFT work together. And Kevin's mind works very quickly. Kevin is a unique example of art and commerce. It's a rare example of that. In other words, I think he's equally as good business person as he is artist. That's quite difficult. Mm -hmm. So he viewed um, this after some thought as a potential, well, why not release a whole movie this way? That was his idea. I did bring him up to speed about the possibilities of NFTs. But once he said that, that was quite a, you know, quite a groundbreaking approach. And I think that we've, you know, 
we spearheaded that model. It was very, very good and was successful for everybody involved. But um, I think there's a lot more that are going to, a lot more possibilities coming for, for what oh, that space can offer. I don't 100%. think we've really gotten there. I think that was yeah. like an advance, like flair of what could be done. So let's let's actually get into that. Uh, as we were talking earlier, um, I'm a big Web3 enthusiast, work in the Web3 recruiting space too. M- my take, and I love your this your take on this, I think the current state of NFTs from a public relations standpoint has given it a very bad rep. People seeing that it's most of it is very uh, you know exclusive. They look at like the board apes and the punks and these these you know for lack of a better word these these scribbles and these electronic doodles that are worth tens, thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars that are so unattainable for so many folks. And I think that gives it a bad rep versus what the technology truly is and what it can do. What's your take on the world of NFTs and and how could we make it easier for folks to onboard and learn what they're truly about? I think just drop the name NFT, you know. So I tried (laughs) to to make people call it, you know, programmable art. So it's a branding and issue. It's a branding issue. We need to change. I, I think it's a branding <laughs> issue that focuses on sort of, uh, you know, trying to create immediate wealth or something. I think that ship has sailed. I mean, I think every so often people will offer something that people will, you know, spend $3 million on. But you really, you know, it's not just the value of something sold. It's the liquidity of something, right? Correct. I wouldn't say you could go out if you have a board ape that you bought for $500,000 and you can immediately get $500,000 no. for it. But I think people are already proving success with low-cost NFT collectibles in terms of gaming pieces, and that's the space I'm most interested in. And I think that that is a very vibrant and growing space. I think that allows you know a user to own their own pieces of uh, a world that they're interacting with story that they're interacting with and trade it when they find that they would like to trade it. Just like, you know, I don't know if you can see behind my head, I have a lot of, uh, I collect comic books. You see that sort of the, all the way in the back there. Yeah. And, um, that's something I like, you know, it's just now you're not going to make millions of dollars on it, but it's important. You enjoy it. You like it. You like, you like collecting too? So I think that NFTs in this sense can store value if they have to be handled correctly. Like I said, it's programmable or interactive art. I think there's a wide range of really interesting art and uh, projects you can develop with this technology. But, you know, NFTs themselves as a standalone uh, product that you're going to make a bunch of money on, you know, every so often maybe. You know, it's not it's not the right approach. And, and those rug pulls are what's giving it uh, a bad rap out there. And, and you know, I, I love seeing the innovation in the space. It really is, in my opinion, also the 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 future use of loyalty programs and loyalty cards. There's so many incredible applications. But I want to talk about at that, that level. You're going to run into a lot of uh, sort of corporate homogenization of that. That's going to get boring, too. But the fact is, is that there it is a two-way pivot between the artist and audience that can do a lot of things and does provide some sort of ownership for the audience or deeper interaction with the artist or the intellectual property that they love. But I understand what you're saying about membership, and that's where it could go and get completely boring. So you no, can, you're, you know, you're right on that. Yeah. So if I, I mean, you know, at a certain point, if it's too much like a membership, who cares? 
Yeah. What's, what's the point? It's interesting too. You mentioned the comic books and I remember about a year ago when I was really immersing into the, into the web three and NFT space, I, I got involved with the board ape comics and it actually went under, but that's when I started to see the real opportunity there, the different versions. And I go back to when I was collecting comics, when I was, you know, nine, 10 years old, there'd be different editions of a comic and different levels of rarity too. And that's what kind of got my wheels turning um, in that space. But I want to talk about blockchain tech a little bit, especially, sure. um, the work that you're doing integrating blockchain blockchain tech into legacy media. Why is this critical to the future of the industry? I think that it's just another opportunity to tell a story. I think that it's, you know, I think what's 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 fun now is this is just like I'm old enough to have been through the uh, initial internet boom and bust. And when there's a lot of capital flowing, everybody thinks that they're going to change the world and there's all this hype and buzz and and then the money recedes <laughs> you're left with sort of like a very pragmatic you know approach to things i think the tech itself um is just going to add incremental revenue to storytelling i think you have to be you know sort of pragmatic it's not going to change everybody's world everything like that it's i think it's going to provide a, a better and more interesting aspect like dvd extras Remember DVD extras? Or you buy the, the, DVD? the chapters and the bonus <laughs> sections at the you end. You get like iTunes Plus now. You can buy the same thing. Extended content. Yeah, Except this this allows it allow this would allow more interaction and more breathability. Like you can't go up to iTunes, and I guess suppose you can, but here it would allow the artist to continue adding chapters. For example, for people who own different uh, programmable art, different tokens to get different access. I think legacy media is going to do what legacy media often does, which is overspend and try to make it too grand. I think right now what I'm interested in, what I'm seeing is potential for more like when Kevin first came out with clerks, like a new Avenue of distribution where people are super creative, um, could provide or develop their own careers and have access to enough money to sustain them. That's what I'm, that's what I'm interested. That's where my company's focus is on. And what's so interesting about that, and I had this conversation with Kevin, it really is fueling and changing the way of the indie film movement where true creators could create and find ways to fund their production and also distribute it, avoiding the big Hollywood system and get it out there. Because that's the whole thing with, with blockchain. It's the ownership of it, right? It's the ownership and the ability to distribute it um, in, in very direct ways. And it's being it's trackable. I mean, everything's right there on the blockchain and it's really changing the way, uh, in my opinion, the future opportunity for creators to get their work out there. And the other piece too is there's so many creators out there that aren't like Kevin who have this business mindset and being able to enable them with the tools and the education and show them by example that there is another way. And maybe light that fire more know that they'll know that there's an opportunity for more people to see their work because that's the ultimate goal is to share it with more eyeballs on it. Yeah, it'd be nice if more artists could sustain their own work you know, so this this offers a new way to approach developing an audience um, that would be more direct as opposed to the mediation of a big platform such as Twitter or Instagram, where you always the rules of engagement are always changing and you're not deciding. So you can you can the artist can decide with this audience the rules of engagement and what they're going to do. And I think we really even ha haven't really seen the full extent of that. I think some of the projects I'm working on now, just like with the Kevin Smith thing, will hopefully bring that possibility to light. I'm pretty excited about what it can do. And it does provide a, a 
quicker route to say investors getting their money back. It does provide a way for audiences to grow. Like I said, outside of the mediation of bigger tech companies, which, you know, you can't count on the term, the rules staying the same. No, definitely, definitely not. And I want to talk about this other concept of a, of a living document, something that you're working yeah. on with the Chris Jericho graphic novel. What yeah. What is a living document, especially in the world of, you know, NFTs and living in this Web3 blockchain space? That project's going to give access to a graphic novel. The graphic novel isn't going to be the NFT. The access to the graphic novel is going to be given through like NFT. Token gated? Mm-hmm. Token gated. Is that the new term? Token gated. Can we find a better term than that? I'll, I'll rebra- wait for somebody to come up with it. We could rebrand that along with NFTs as well. We'll come up with a whole new uh, nomenclature for well, how we're just describing. make a note that we would like to see that one. Make change. a note that that's we're not, changing. That's not poetic to- enough. Yeah. But token, yes, token you have access, you'll have access to this um, comic arc because it's five issues. Um, and you have different levels of access. So we wanted to make something extremely inexpensive. Really, that would be basically what you would pay to get a comic in a comic book store but you have the ownership and that that allows certain aspects of the panels to interact but there's a higher price token that's more beautiful more time spent they're all individual that's again not not too expensive but it unlocks a lot more animation there's a game in it and we like the story so over time our shop's going to keep adding to it and hopefully we'll have a community around the project and they'll want to see things or explore different characters. And so since the NFT is gains access to it, the document, the art, the IP, I would say this is a low, low-fi way of developing a metaverse. And that interests me because, again, people spend way too much money on everything. So right now in this comic, you already have what you might consider metaverse-type interactions, but it's not a whole world. And so that's what I think – that's what we're interested in doing. That's what we're interested in, in seeing happen is the story that can keep evolve through the artist and the audience interaction. And then it becomes an explorable world naturally without trying to force that in. There's, you know, thousands of explorable worlds that are being pitched. I'll tell you at the end of the day, it always comes down to a good story. Always yeah, comes down to a good story, not, not the tech. And it's interesting as you're saying this, my wheels are turning. And <laughs> as a, as a podcast host, I I've been practicing, not jumping, ahead but my wheels are spinning here and i wanted to get your hot take i was I, gonna I ask you what the nonlinear conversations are just fun i i love it because your your hot take on the metaverse and you know i tell everybody this who's everyone who's shitting on the metaverse right now i said listen we are literally in the first at bat of the first inning here this is this is we are so early stage here and i think people are expecting it to be some kind of almost one-on-one reality of what we're experiencing now but that's not what it's about and thinking about different ways of the application. And I love the way you're developing this concept of community-generated interaction in the metaverse. And I think that's a tremendous application for people to really understand and wrap their head around, that it's a, that it's a, a, it's a collaborative process. And this is a fine example of that. And I'm extremely excited to see how this works out. And hopefully, it'll be a, a tremendous use case of the metaverse. Yeah, and we're working. You know, we're just we're um, distributing this exclusively through GameStop. So GameStop. We're gonna, that, this going to be on their uh, on their NFT marketplace. David, this has been a great chat. I want to bring it home here, and I have some really interesting questions around. Um, just kind of personal. Like, is there who would be your dream collaborator? It could be from 
uh, alive or dead, somebody who you would love to work with. I'm going to ring it. Uh, I'm going to open it up. It could be anything. Who would you love to work with? Oh, yes. I'm waiting for the Grateful Dead to call me and let me build their NFT programmable art metaverse. So, What, what if I, well, let's sidebar that. We'll sidebar that one. I have a, an interesting connection with that one. We could talk about that uh, afterwards. They, this is the final tour. I saw the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Instagram post that they're on the, the, the final leg here. So, David, let's bring it home here. What is the single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received in your life that you take action on daily? Oh, can I think about that for a second? Uh, yeah. Don't never lie to yourself. Have you ever lied to yourself? I try not to lie to myself. The world of communication is very, very complicated and changing. But if you lose track of what your intent is um, internally, things can go very bad. That there's, is a, there's, very... a, there's a clarity that you can always try to develop. And it's, it's, that has helped me. And I think clarity. that's the, the whole martial arts and Chinese medicine training has taught me. And clarity, clarity is certainly key there. And, and David, you want, what, you want to hear the advice my Chinese uh, doctor taught me, my teacher? Of course, please. Yeah, he's the only one who could pull this off. He was, uh, his name was Dr. John Shen. And he was at the top of his field. You know, he fled to Taiwan during the great upheaval. Um, his take on Chinese medicine was very, very different. And he was very, very good. And I got to sit with him for many, many hours, many days, many years, watching him treat patients. And one time I saw him heal a patient just by being so centered that the anxiety and tightness this person was carrying around with them for so long, restricting their circulation on our levels, uh, relaxed under his presence. That's just a story about how good he really was. But Chinese pulse diagnosis is the key to understanding how to help somebody heal, listening to their pulse. And you have to listen very carefully. And it's very easy to project what you want to hear. Now, I couldn't say something like this and have anyone believe it. But here's what he told me that helped me. He said, if you want to diagnose, he says, first of all, Chinese medicine is diagnosis. Everything else is technique. So that's very deep right there. He said, if you want to diagnose, you have to make your mind very still. Because if you don't make your mind still, it's like throwing a pebble into a lake where there's already a lot of ripples. You never see where that ripple is going. There's already too many ripples in there. So if you want to be a good doctor, uh, you have to learn how to calm all those ripples down so you can see the trajectory, intent, and situation of the person in front of you. That resonated with me a lot, and I found a lot of application of that outside of uh, medicine. That's, that's quite a take. And I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and let that sink in for a little bit for everyone listening out there, the core difference there. And David, last but not least, you look back on your life and your career. And of course, there were hard times, tough times, and those times where you really had to dig down deep and harness that inner tenacity to pull yourself up and out and forward. And the same breath, when you want to show extreme gratitude and appreciation for this life, this business, this world around you that you have contributed to and that you have created and all that you put out there. David Shapiro, what is your compass in life? What keeps you focused? What is your North Star? What drives me forward? 
What is your beacon? I still believe it's a, it's a good world, no matter how much darkness is around. And I'd like to, you know, be a part of trying to make that world come into fruition. A better world, more peaceful world. I also believe that, you know, art is ultimately the best form of communication. So being able to help people express that, express their view, express their vision, uh, is also a driving force. And of course, all the basic things in life like family and the rest is also a driving force. I love it. Tremendous. David, this has been a fantastic conversation. I want to thank you so much for joining me. Hang with me one moment here. Uh, everyone, if you want to check out Kilroy, Kilroy was here.io. Where else could folks connect with you? Where could they learn more? Where's the best spot, David? Well, Adam, is it possible that when we're ready to announce uh, the Jericho project, which will be in a couple of weeks, that we can share that with your audience? A hundred percent. Maybe cook up something special for them. We will certainly figure that out. Uh, where's the best place for folks to follow you and connect? Uh, really, it's hard to follow me, but you could go to simcore.io and simcoreproductions.com. I don't go. have any social media. Um, when I have a project, usually, usually, um, it, it be, you know, people hear about it. Like they'll hear about this project now with Chris. But um, another another place to look at is I'm very happy and proud of the educational initiative, which is Stage Three VFX, Stage3VFX.com. That that is our whole uh, visual effects training program. And we'll we'll link that up in the show notes. Awesome, David. I want to thank you so much for joining me and everyone listening at home. I hope you uh, could take away a number of golden nuggets uh, that David provided. Check out all the links in there. Remember, for all things podcast, visit the podcast.com. Follow us on all the social media channels. Remember, take care of each other. Look out for one another and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever. But for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon. Jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search the podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>